Hello, I'm John Steele of Cafe Direct, and this is the Building Better Business podcast, a podcast that examines how business can and needs to be more than just making money. Unraveling how we create new business models to better serve our communities and the environment. This really is the future of how we'll do business and how we can all play a part. Good news, everyone. We have a new competition starting this week. We'd like to hear your views on the Building Better Business podcast. It'll really help us to plan season two next year in 2022. Come on, it's your podcast. Your views are important. Please head over to cafe direct forward slash podcast and complete a short one minute questionnaire. Complete the survey by December the 31st, 2021. And to say thank you, we'll send you a bag of our very special 30th anniversary blend of coffee. We have Ben Greensmith from Tony's Chocoloni joining us this week. Now, Tony's is a brand that has been warmly received by chocolate lovers in the UK, not only because it tastes absolutely fantastic, but because of what it stands for, for making the chocolate industry slave free. Ben gives us a lowdown on how the cocoa industry is operating today and who are the major culprits for exploitation. And we learn how Tony's Chocoloni make sure that their cocoa is slave and poverty free. And also how they are inspiring other companies to use their sourcing principles. I don't know where to start because I don't know whether to call you Ben or Lord Chocoloni III. What do you prefer? Either will do. Probably another good place to start would be to actually ask you, Ben, You know, how did Tony Chocoloni start? It's a really interesting one. And actually, whenever I talk about it or whenever I talk at events, I call it the story of a, an unusual chocolate bar because we never set out to, to become, a, I suppose, a, a small but really fast growing chocolate business in a number of countries. So it all started actually back in the Netherlands 15 years ago, where there's a TV program called Kering Dienst to Van der Vaarde, and my Dutch colleagues always laugh at my pronunciation, so hopefully they won't be listening. But on this TV program, there were three Dutch journalists, and they were, I mean, the, the translation for Kering Dienst to Van Vaarde is food unwrapped or food uncovered. And they were looking at brand claims, marketing claims in food and drink, and they had a, a slightly kind of tongue-in-cheek expose of products and brands and supply chains. One day, one of these journalists was a, a guy called Turn, Turn van der Kerken. The international translation or the English translation for Turn is Tony. And uh, one day he was at home and he was leafing through his paper, the Sunday paper. And he, on page eight, he came across this article that said that there are approximately one and a half million children, my boy's age, pre-teens, teens, um, working illegally on cocoa farms in West Africa due to due to poverty and there's really high instances as well of slavery and child labor so he was like well two things struck him two things struck tony he was like firstly why the hell is this on page eight of my paper why is this not front page news and secondly in 2000 how 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 is this happening in modern day society for you know you've got chocolate something that everyone loves and enjoys and then you've got this really bitter horrible start point in in what's been done about it so he was like, right, this is this is going to be the next episode. So what he did, actually, he also found that a few years prior to this, there was something called the Harkin-Engel Protocol, which is widely known as the Chocolate Protocol, where two congressmen, Harkin and Engel, uh, over in the States, they basically said, well, look, 
we know we've got this big problem. So there's in high instances of slavery and child labor in cocoa. There's a handful of big chocolate companies who control all of the, the power, basically. They have all of the power. So they control about 95% of all of the cocoa that's traded in the world. And these are the, the big brand owners like Mars, Nestle, Hershey, Mondelez, Ferrero, Lint, and then the big producers, Cargill and, and Calabao. And it, they're like, right, well, if there's a handful of these big chocolate giants and there's this massive problem, then what we'll do is we'll get those big chocolate giants around the table and we'll get them to agree to rid the industry of slavery and child labor. And they did that. And all of the big chocolate companies signed this uh, chocolate protocol and they promised that within 10 years, 2001, they would rid the industry of slavery and child labor. And you can go online and you can look at it and you can see all the signatories as well. And so Tony was like, right, okay, we're halfway through this. Let's find out what's been done, what progress has been made. So he, he phoned all the chocolate companies. He flew out to Nestle's head office, fa fancy new head office in uh, Lake Geneva. And he said, well, guys, what are you doing about it? What progress are you making? And basically they all said, look, we're not making progress. We can't make progress. Nothing can be done. It's too complex. So he was like, wow, that's, I mean, that's not, that's not good. No one's taking responsibility. So Tony basically fil filmed himself eating a load of chocolate from these chocolate companies. He bought himself a handful of these bars and he basically phoned the police and he said, look, I'm knowingly eating chocolate that I'm pretty sure there's some form of forced labor, slavery or child labor in the value chain. So you've got to come and arrest me because I'm effectively financing slavery and child labor. I know it's happening. I'm part of the problem. They hung up on him and he, he didn't stop there. So he, he basically took matters further. He hired a lawyer and he prosecuted himself for the same crime. And he flew out to West Africa where 60% of the world's cocoa comes from. So most of the world's come, cocoa comes from Ghana and the Ivory Coast. And that's where the problems are. And he found four former child slaves who had been sold and trafficked. He got them to testify against him and he flew one of them back into the Netherlands and uh, yeah, hired a, hired a lawyer, prosecuted himself and the court case lasted for two years, caused quite a stir. And two years later, off the back of it, Tony didn't actually go to, go to jail. But the lawyer said, yeah, look, you've got a point. Morally, this isn't right, but I can't draw a link between the cocoa that you've you've eaten and the cocoa that these boys have produced and been forced to produce. And if I send you to jail, it's going to set a terrible precedent for everyone else uh, in the Netherlands. So um, I'm not sending you to jail, but morally you're right. So off the back of that, Tony created as a PR stunt, this exact same bar, a bright red bar when everything else was blue. And he made 5,000 of them and he put it in a bright red wrapper and he called it Tony's Chocolate Only. Uh, the, the lonely element because it was just him fighting the battle to rid the industry of slavery and child labor. And he, he, he kind of stuck it out there as a PR stunt and they, they sold out in hours. And it was at that stage that we decided that, look, if we're really serious, the best way isn't by just doing a PR stunt or a TV program or, or an NGO. It's about basically showing that there's a different way to make delicious chocolate that doesn't involve exploiting West African communities. So that is how, that's why I call it the story of an unusual chocolate bar. And that is how Tony started 15 years ago off the back of a court case, an accidental chocolate bar with kind of journalistic beginnings that has now, I suppose, become the number one chocolate brand now in the Netherlands with 20% with market share.
what we want to do is we want to raise awareness of the problems, right? The big companies don't want you to know about it. We want everyone to know about these issues. The fact that you've still got exactly the same number, nearly one and a half million kids working illegally on cocoa farms in West Africa because of poverty, because the big companies don't pay enough. And that's what we want to change. So we want everyone to be aware and then we can give consumers a better choice. So now in 2021, what's the big difference? So you, you've now got this incredible company and this fantastic brand, uh, number one in you know, your first home country in Holland and growing fast in a number of other places. Talk a little bit about the difference. I mean, you've highlighted and shone a light on these big corporates that have got slavery in their supply chains. A little bit more about perhaps what that is like and then on the other side, what Tony's supply chain is like. That, that would help, I think. You've got to think of the cocoa value chain as, as like an hourglass on its side. So on one side, you have billions of consumers, people like you and me, who probably love eating chocolate, cocoa-related products, and don't really think about where that cocoa is coming from. On the other side, you've got millions of farmers, and those farmers, uh, it's more than 60% of the world's cocoa comes from West Africa. Over there, you've got about 2.5 million smallholder farms and, and plantations, and that's where most of the world's cocoa comes from. They're for little family operations. And in the middle, and this is the pinch point in the hourglass, you have a handful of massive chocolate companies who control the price and the flow and the volumes bought of, of, of cocoa. And they're the brands that I mentioned earlier, so the big brand owners and the big producers. And that's that's where the problem lies because those companies pay as little as possible. No matter what they say, they pay as little as possible so they can make as much money as possible. And these are the companies that if you go online and Google, their operating margins are in the high teens and 20s. So like crazily profitable companies and businesses. That then creates big structural issues. So you have most of the world's cocoa coming from Ghana and the Ivory Coast. You've got two and a half million farms there. And because those farmers are paid so little for their crops and for their cocoa, the average farmer earns, I mean, it's really well publicized, it's, it's, it's about 50 pence per day, right? These farmers, these men and women have families of eight to feed. So they're earning an absolute pittance for their crops. So they're forced to basically take their kids out of school and use them on their farms because they can't afford to hire labor. So that's where you end up with this problem where you've got about just shy of one and a half million children working illegally on cocoa farms in West Africa. And these are kids who are carrying machetes. They're, they're not going to school. They're carrying heavy loads, you know, loads that, you know, me as a 43-year-old bloke would struggle to carry. They're exposed to pesticides. They don't have the right equipment. And then a lowball number from the global slavery indexes that you have then a minimum of about 30,000 who are sold and trafficked as effectively modern day slaves. And you can, you can buy a, a child out there for, for, for a few thousand dollars. And we don't think that's right. What we do is we, we have our five sourcing principles. This is what we want everyone to be aware of that. And then we want to change it. So we have our five sourcing principles. And that starts with paying a fair price for your cocoa. The number one is fair price. And we say price is the key fertilizer. So what we do is we pay the farm gate price, which is give or take approximately, let's say $1,000 a tonne. But we also then pay a fair trade premium on top of that. That's good, right? Because that guarantees the farmers are getting a premium for their cocoa. But for us, that doesn't go far enough. So we then pay a Tony's premium on top of that. And we pay it direct to the communities that we work with. And we work backwards from ensuring that they can earn a living income for their crop. So they have enough money to basically provide and get out of poverty. We also, and this is really important as well, because most of the world's cocoa is traded from a big faceless pile 
is mass balance. For us, that's not good enough. So we have a 100% traceable supply chain. So we can track all of our cocoa. We know the, the cooperatives and the farmers that we work with, and we know at any stage where that cocoa is in, in our value chain as well. And that's really important because it enables us to understand and work with the communities who are growing that cocoa to, to look for any problems, which is important, right? You have to look for problems. We know the problems are there. Don't just ignore them. You know, look for them because you can't solve them otherwise. Um, the third area is we have long-term agreements. So any agreement we have with, with our the cooperatives that we work with will be for five years so that they can plan and invest in their farms for the future. They know they're going to be getting a, a fair price for their crops. We only work with cooperatives, which is number four, and that's really important. Uh, and that's one of the reasons that we like fair trade, because it uh, ensures that those farmers are stronger together. Yep. And then the fifth, the fifth sourcing principle that we have is that we work with those cooperatives and those farmers to increase their yield and productivity through enhanced measures, but also help them diversify. So if ever there's a problem with cocoa, they're not totally reliant on it. And only by doing those five things can we enable those farmers to get out of poverty. And that's, that is our five sourcing principles. That's what we've been doing and refining for the last 15 years. And we say to those big chocolate companies, copy this. This is how you make chocolate free of slavery and child labor. And we want all companies to adopt those sourcing principles. And we now have this open chain platform. And we will facilitate anyone to come on board with that. So recently, Albert Hein now sourced their own label, uh, Delicata range, using our five sourcing principles. So Aldi in Germany, Austria and the UK have just launched their own label using our five sourcing principles. And that's really important. Okay, we might be number one in the Netherlands. Our turnover, you know, over there is about 60 to 70 million euros. We got 20% market share, but... It's a country with 17 million people, right? And I reckon we account for about 0.2% of the world's cocoa. So we're tiny. So we need all of those companies, big and small, to to come with us. And unfortunately, it's just not moving fast enough. Like 20, 20 years on from the Harkin Engel protocol, nothing has changed. It's really good to hear that you know, your five principles are very similar to the way we work. I mean, certainly diversifying farm income so that you know, as an entrepreneurial family, you're building your own business and reducing your dependency on your monocrop and also encouraging your children to see your business as a future rather than agriculture as the past. All these things are really important part of making a sustainable kind of family life, aren't they, in these remote areas of the world? Absolutely. It is a fine line, right? And it's one that I sometimes think we need to be more activist. You know, we, we say we're an impact company that makes chocolate. We're not a chocolate company that wants to make an impact. So the impact is comes first, right? And that's change. And therefore, the profit that we make, the chocolate that we make is, is simply a vehicle to spread awareness and basically make a difference. But we have to tread quite a fine line because I, you know, I, do, I do want to get out there and we need to piss those big companies off and we need to be in their faces and we need to be shaking the tree and, and, and rattling their cage and, and, and telling them to up their game. But at the same time, we need them to come with us. So it's a really fine balancing act. It's an interesting balancing act, isn't it? Because if you're looking to help change anybody or anything, that balance between being critical or being a critical friend and helping the person to respond in the right way or the organisation to respond in the right way and providing the the tools to do that kind of job 
is quite challenging, even if the power base was balanced. But in these kind of discussions, you're you're talking about a very David and Goliath kind of situation. So navigating that and then unlocking the change in behavior is, yeah, it's, it's serious work. You're dead right. I think that's why we put our focus from a brand, from a marketing perspective, goes on the consumer. Yeah. Because actually, that's, I think, where the power sits. Because if consumers know what their what their favorite brands are doing or not doing, they will vote with their wallets. One of the things that strikes me about Tony's, because, you know, yeah, Cafe Direct has been a campaigning organization and a, you know, impact organization, only working with cooperatives and a number of components that are very similar to, to yours. But one of the things that has really struck me, and even more so as you come into the UK and, you know, you, you were the first person in, in the UK, is you do this brilliant job of having this impact model and having this desire to call people out. But on the other hand, you have this absolutely engaging way of presenting the brand that really seems to connect well with consumers talk a little bit about how you present yourself as a brand and because you know you've got a, a certain kind of mold of chocolate and the way the packaging works and the way you choose to communicate are they're clearly really market orientated if i can be so bold uh, no it's great to hear actually i think this bar started it, it was never meant to be on shelf. So the design for Tony's Chocolate Only was was done by a guy called Aaron, uh, or Clink as we call him, who's still in our business today as a favor for the, this TV program. And it took him 15 minutes. But what's great about it is actually now that is the total opposite of a really serious mission, right? And you put these beautiful bars on a shelf and 99% of people will fall in love with the branding and the packaging. And that's what draws you in because we haven't typically spent on media. We can't compete with those big budgets. So we rely on that bar doing a lot of the work for us. And it's it's fun. It's vibrant. If you go into some of our, our retailers, you see all of those bars multicolored lined up. It's really, really impactful. And that kind of brings you in. And that's really important because it sings from the shelf. But then when you unwrap the bar, you see that the bar, I mean, I think it's absolutely beautiful, but it's unequally divided. And that is because that bar tells the story of the unequal nature of the cocoa industry. So for centuries, we've been making chocolate bars, all uniform, perfectly neat and equal. And if you listen to the story and you read about it, we're like, well, this isn't an equal industry. So therefore, we're going to make our bars unequal because you could be, you could be one of the big chocolate giants and you get a big bit, but... You could be one of the farmers and get a tiny bit of the pie. And underneath it is a bloody delicious product, right? There's no palm oil in it. It's got a high cocoa content and it's made in Belgium. It's the best tasting chocolate I think there is out there. And that's really important because actually what we have to show is that it is possible to make even better tasting chocolate using our five sourcing principles. And if we can do that, then anyone can do that. But the brand brings you in first and foremost. And then hopefully we can tell people about the issues on the back inside on the bar itself and people are intrigued enough to go online and learn about it and read about it and then maybe share that story with their friends and that's that's effectively how we have grown to over 100 well, I would do over 100 million in euros globally this year probably 60% of that at the moment still in the Netherlands but act, you know if we're really going to change things that change has to come where those big chocolate giants are so that's why we've launched in the UK that's why we've launched in Germany and the USA as well. So those are what we call our golden markets. And we want to do exactly what we've done in the Netherlands, in those markets, and basically take the fight to the big chocolate giants because that's that's where they're living, basically. But yeah, the branding, the look and the feel and the packaging is, 
is the total opposite of a very serious mission. Yeah, which I think is a really interesting thing for those of us who look in and think and, and try and learn from that situation. In terms of positioning, how do you sum up the positioning in a couple of words? Two words. We <laughs> premium mainstream. <laughs> we we have to compete. We have to go after those big chocolate companies and we have to show that there's, you know, there's an alternative. So for us, impact equals scale. Mm-hmm. So we have to be where the volume is. Yeah, everybody says, well, you know, how come you're so successful? And then I thought, well, actually, I need to pause because probably the first question is, how do you measure success? Because a lot of traditional organizations very much go, you know, we're really successful. Our market share has gone from 1% to 7% or, you know, our sales are growing at 40%. But how do you as an organization view success? We are a commercial organization. And, and the reason for that is that we want people to copy us. So we have to show that our, our solution is, is scalable. But in every market that we're in, we start with issue awareness. So we measure what percentage of the population are aware that there are problems with slavery and child labor in West, in West Africa. Because unless we know that, we can't really do anything, right? And it starts with the problem. People need to know there's a problem. So that's one of our key metrics. In, in the Netherlands, where we've been going for 15 years, that is over 70%. So more than 70% of the Dutch population are aware that there's um, issues with slavery and child labor on wow. cocoa farms. That's, that's a lot of people. Mm. In the UK, where we've been going for two and a half years, it's 34%. Last year, it was 28%. So we're making progress. We're getting the message out there. And then obviously, the big thing for us then is the giving people a choice. And for us, that is where we will focus on growth and our revenues in that top line. Because our top line, whilst it's quite a crude measure, so our net revenue, effectively shows us how well we're doing compared to those other big companies. And the more that we sell, the more the awareness, the more people are making a better choice the more money going back to farmers in West Africa. We also look at the number of farmers that we're working with and the amount of tonnage that's going through our value chain. So this year we're working with about 12,000 farmers across seven cooperatives. So we want to bring on more cooperatives because it means we're helping more farmers. And the in terms of the, the metric tons this year, it's about 12 and a half thousand metric tons, about 9,000 of which are just Tonys and about 4,000, which is great because this is also the future for us, 4,000 going through our open chain sourcing principles. So that means that partners such as Albert Hein, Lidl are basically now about 50% of our volume again that's going through that, which is which is really fabulous. But we're tiny. Our mission is to make all chocolate worldwide 100% slave free, right? And in the grand scheme of things, we're, we're a mile off. So we're just getting started. And we won't rest until all, all of the world's cocoa is traded fairly. Like Cafe Direct, you're very much available where consumers shop, so very much in, in supermarkets. Uh, tell us a little bit about how the um, journey getting into UK grocery has been. I mean, it's Sainsbury's, Waitrose, Tesco's, Ocado. Where are you not available, Ben? <laughs> We've been going for two and a half years. We we have been very, very focused as, as, a, as a UK team, as a business, on building the brand slowly, deliberately, and making sure that at every touch point where we're listed, our retail partners understand what we're about, and they will support us and and, and our mission on shelf as well. So I think we could have gone a lot faster than we have done, but we've been very, very deliberate. We launched with Waitrose, Sainsbury's and Ocado from the outset, and then and this is really important for us, loads of independents through wholesalers or through direct sales through through our website that really 
just give you a lot more opportunity to talk about what we're doing and why we're doing it because you've got a bit more space and you can talk to store staff and then they become advocates and they sell on your behalf as well. And so that's been really, really important for us. But more recently, we've launched into Tesco's and, and Co-op as well. Yeah, I think at the moment now of the big guys, we're not in Asda, we're not in Morrison's. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, we need to be everywhere that the big chocolate companies are. So it's uh, not it's a question of when, not if. It's been really interesting because actually when you start talking to, and I don't know if you find this with coffee, but when you start talking to the retailers and the buying teams and the trading teams about the issues, there's quite a low awareness of the problems, even from the people that are, are buying the categories. And again, it's because you've had eons with these big companies just telling them what they want to hear and no one's really scratching deeper so it's it it's been great and actually what we're finding is we're attracting someone totally new to chocolate that wasn't there before a younger more affluent shopper who are spending more on the category 60 percent of our sales have been totally incremental as well so we're driving value into the market we have the only bar in the top 10 value rate of sale that is non-cabris and we're only in this is data only in the the top two so the potential and the scale for tony's to really have impact as we expand is 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 massive when you go to a supermarket and you present them with tony's what kind of reaction do you get what in that moment when the buyer you know is sitting there and you've you've put out your your wares when we launched over here two and a half years ago we drop in a note to the to various buyers phoning as, as you do saying hey look i want to come and talk to you i've we you know we're Chocolate brand, big in the Netherlands. Buying assistant came back. Sorry, X, Y, and Z said there's no space at the next fixture. We're not we're not planning any changes for next year. I was like, right, that's we're not we're not having that. So this bar does a lot of the hard work for us. It's beautiful. It tastes delicious. Everything's on it. It's it's unique, right? So we made up some lovely little boxes. I put two slides in there. We put our annual fair report in because we publish everything that we do. Uh, we were talking earlier about transparency, not because we have to, but because we want people to criticize us it makes us stronger and we sent a handful of our core range bars up to the buyer and um about two days later we got a phone call saying when can you come in and see us and and i think i think once people see the product there most people fall in love with it they try the product they're even deeper in love and then you you tell them why we exist and i think it's those three things that make it really really strong and powerful and in a way my you know my job our team's job is 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 quite straightforward because it i think it's such a strong proposition we've just got to make sure we get it in the right places and then we educate people and tell people in the in the right way well it's wonderful when somebody doesn't even object just refuses to engage and then when you do one or two things that completely switch that round that's an incredibly rewarding uh, moment and it's it's also fantastic because it's clearly what you can do with just with consumers too. You talked earlier about campaigning and getting advocates on board. How do I get involved in campaigning and, and being involved in the mission aside from trying to eat large amounts of Tony's? <laughs> Ask the questions of the big chocolate companies, your favorite chocolate companies. You know, ask them how much they're paying for their cocoa, push them on their sourcing principles. But ultimately, it is, I think, as as consumers, you know, every product that we buy, whether that's coffee, whether that's chocolate, whether that's a chicken in store, is effectively a vote for the type of world that you want to live in. Because there's a history there and there's a supply chain there and there's it has an impact further down. So I think the most important thing we can do as consumers is is be curious and ask questions of those big big companies be it chocolate, be it coffee, put them under pressure uh, and make more informed and be curious, make make conscious choices. 
we touched on fair trade a couple of times and um, both Cafe Direct and Tony's are, you know, fair trade companies through and through. And as you know, Cafe, Cafe Direct was the first coffee brand in 94 when it started and has stuck with it uh, through thick and thin. And like you mentioned earlier, you know, for, for us, it provides a, a, a minimum price. It provides a premium that can have advantage. And then if you add in other components, you can get very close and really address the issues of, of farmers' lives. Some companies would say, actually, we can do it ourselves, or they'd say, here's our own scheme. Tony's is a very provocative brand. It's really standing up for it, what, what it does. In a way, it's the kind of business that doesn't need third-party certification, but you still choose to adopt it. Talk a little bit about that and about how you see companies that say we don't need to go with a third party certification we can do it ourselves when tony started this it was max havelar in in the netherlands so we've been fair trade from the beginning not as long as cafe direct but this it's a, there's a reason for that it's one it's a third party accreditation so it kind of keeps things real it's mm. not us marking our own homework and two the reason that we really like fair trade well one of the reasons is it only works with cooperatives yeah so it, it's empowering farmers and it's empowering communities. And actually, there's also a, a premium. So there's a guaranteed premium in, in cocoa that's $240 a tonne. And that premium, those communities are free to spend it how they want. So, you know, it's not us meddling or telling them how they need to spend it. And that's really important. Yeah, I think the co-op point is important as well, um, aggregating farmers and building communities and building capacity through the co-op movement is a really key component, isn't it, as well? So. Definitely. I think where we like to go further is obviously we work off a living income reference price. So we pay then the Tony's premium on top of that, which means we're paying at the moment 60 to 70% more than the farm gate price. But we've actually worked on that model in conjunction. So the living income reference price we've worked on over the years in conjunction with, with fair trade. So they, they're bought into it. It's just quite a big jump for them to go up to that level and get up there. But one day, I think that's where everyone acknowledges it needs to be. But to your to the second point of your your question, uh, and I'll be totally blunt with this: the self certification that you see on chocolate is nothing short for me of greenwashing. It's companies marking their own homework. Yes, there's some good in there, but fundamentally, it gets them away from having to pay a fair price for their cocoa because it's all about shareholder profit and shareholder value. And that's not right. No matter what these big brands say, the problem, the root cause is poverty. And that poverty, the key fertilizer it, for those farmers to get out of poverty is a fair price for their cocoa. So I would love, you know, for us, fair trades, are, it's a great start. Every, you know, Waitrose, all of their cocoa is sourced using fair trade uh, principles. And then same same with co-op. Yep. That's, that's a great start for us. Yep. We want it to go further. And, and, and also, it's mass balance as well. And, and for us, you know, we want, if you're going to stick a, a bean in Tony's, we, we want you to know where it's come from. So yep. that's that's important for us. So a great start should be the standard for, for all cocoa. Can I try to just bring to life the, the way the, the organisation is governed and, and structured? I mean, I know... In the UK, we've got yourself, Lord Chocoloni the Third. I mean, there must be a Lord Chocoloni the First somewhere and the Second. But talk a little bit about how your organisation is is governed and structured. We're, we're a privately owned company. We were started 15 years ago by three Dutch journalists. We're a commercial organisation. About 20% of the company is owned by the, the people in it. 
so we have a we have a share scheme which is which is very generous and uh, we find that that really empowers and motivates people to work much harder we have an impact team over in the netherlands of, of about five or six people and their job is solely focused on making sure that we stay true to our principles and our values and work really closely with the communities in west africa we have a foundation which we don't talk about much which is totally separate that's it that's effectively a charity yeah one percent of our revenue every year goes to so revenue not profit which is really important goes to funding and helping communities in west africa where we source as well recently we took some investment from verl invest and Jamjar, and Jamjar is the investment it's richard reed's investment vehicle isn't it yes it's, it's my my old bosses the ex-innocent ex-innocent guys um, and that's really to help us step on our international expansion uh, to build a brand in all those markets uh, and also I suppose crack more products and more areas um, so we can change chocolate a little bit faster and we put culture I mean we say we're crazy about chocolate serious about people so the chocolate is the vehicle to change but the culture element and, and having the right team and the most engaged team is so so important for us so we put a lot of focus on building strong and attractive culture that really rewards people internally because actually you know unless you've got the best people fired on and motivated we're never gonna achieve that big goal of changing the world's cocoa industry from within so we have a lot of softer benefits as well give me some examples of these softer benefits so we have unlimited holiday i mean it's the first thing when you come and become a tony you can take as much chocolate as you can physically carry home each and every day that's that's quite a big attraction for some people that but we know chocolate is not good for you right so to offset that we will give you a sports bonus every year so we say look here's 100 quid go and buy yourself some trainers and go and take a run we also have a baby bonus so a lot of companies don't want you to have kids (laughs) we love kids we call them tiny tonies and if you have a tiny tony we'll give you a give you a little bonus uh, to start you on your way of a thousand pounds and we say as well if you have a baby and you call it tony which no one's done we'll give you five thousand pounds but no one's done that yet. It's not as popular a name as it <laughs> as it was. Everyone in, in our team and the business has two and a half thousand pounds a year as well to spend on their personal development, which is agreed with their managers. And it's stuff like that, I think, that that kind of just makes sure that we can we keep developing and we keep pushing each other and we keep getting good people who are fired on and motivated. Over to you a little bit, Ben. I mean, you've got a a great career. You've worked in large, fast-moving consumer goods businesses. You've worked in businesses with with purpose you worked at innocent you worked at um proper snack that experience what did you take from that what immediately could you see helped in your leadership of tony's as you were the first person coming into the uk i've been working now in food and drink for 21 years which is quite depressing so it's just like literally straight i'm probably halfway through my career so i don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing so but i love it <laughs> half i'm halfway there wherever i'm going but I started off at Unilever 20 odd years ago and got some great training. It was brilliant, but the blue chip, the big, the slow, cumbersome didn't really appeal to me. And it was, you know, your your ability to make a change isn't great, right? Because you're, you're tiny in this massive, massive business. So I then had the chance to go and work at Innocent, uh, which was at that time back in 2007, the place to be. Everyone was talking about it. It was a different approach to business. And I had the best eight years there. I learned so much um, around impact, around brand building. I worked with some of the best people I've ever worked with. I learned so, so much. And then we built that business and and, and I think sold it to Coke for like half a billion. And I stuck around for a couple of years after that, but never for me was working for Coke part Mm -hmm. of what I wanted to do. So that didn't 
sit fantastically with me if I'm honest but yep. purely from a career perspective I learned quite a lot over that transition but the thing that's really driven me and, and inspired me is working for a great brand right a great product a great brand a product that I love as well but ultimately if I can build businesses and you know I'm, I'm quite good at that kind of stuff I want to make sure that I'm having a positive impact and making the world a little bit of a better place and so for me to do what I do and have an impact further down the value chain is probably the most important thing. And I think over the last 20 years, I've really learned that having a purpose and working for a business that is purpose-driven and making a positive impact on the world is probably the fundamental thing for me. And I won't work anywhere else. I also do a non-exec role for this pro bono yeah. called Nemi Tees, who basically their whole business model, their social enterprise is around employing refugees who come to the UK and can't get a foot on the on the ladder. So it gives them employment and it gives them a chance in, in society. And most important thing for me, but I learned so much around brand building, building distribution, and, and most of that came from Innocent. It was mm -hmm. just a brilliant eight years. But Tony's is that, and it's even more. It's, it's amplified tenfold. Well, I mean, the reason we called this podcast series Building Better Businesses, I think, Whenever I listen to people like yourself, Ben, the amount of energy and enthusiasm and belief that, you know, as people, it's up to us to change the world. And, you know, people working for businesses in this way and setting examples in the way that you're doing is the way that we can change things. And it can be done and it will be done. And when I hear so many more, uh, you know, there's, there's so much enthusiasm and momentum i mean it, it's wonderful isn't it and you're sitting there going why would i ever work anywhere else <laughs> i have to pinch myself sometimes to because i'm doing what i do and i love it i know i'm lucky but we find actually i'm really seeing that people that we're interviewing are now coming to us we've they want to come and work and they want to work at a business that's doing the right thing and and i think i've definitely because i do a lot of recruitment i've seen that big shift in in people's outlooks particularly i think it's sped up over the last couple of years and and, and potentially due to the pandemic yeah but we just just not fast enough like there's not enough change happening in the world and it needs it needs to happen so much faster but then i think you know this kind of thing does help and the more businesses like cafe direct like tony's like Nemi Tees, all of yeah. those businesses the great businesses and so many out there the b corps of the world will have a positive impact on the world the point about recruitment i mean we've, we've been doing recruitment as we've been growing and growing and you know 10 years ago it was so different to now now you'll get on a long list of people you'll get people from some of the world-class businesses where they're going i want to make a change and i know i can't make a change in this organization so it might have been a great training ground but to fulfill my my dreams and to to, to change the world in which i want to I know that working for somebody like Tony's or somebody like Cafe Direct, I can set an example. I've got permission to do business in the right way rather than feel like I'm a small cog in a structure that's not fit for purpose effectively. We've just recruited somebody and my goodness, the applicants were phenomenal. And it's just, it's just wonderful because it means that human capital is moving where the future is. And I think a lot of people are saying that the same is true of financial capital. So... Although we need to move faster and all, all you know, you're, you're so right. God, the momentum, the, the snowball effect can occur, can't it? So it, it is exciting times. With all that and, and Nemi Tees who, who are fabulous and the, the packaging is, is beautiful to, and to die for and so on and so forth. And you've got that non-exec position where you're helping the team out there. 
What's your advice to somebody who wants to launch a new a new food brand to make a real difference? I think there's never been a better time to be a purpose-driven enterprise organization, be it you know commercial or otherwise. And I think um, when you're starting up, that's the most important time because that's when you've got the opportunity to put the the systems, the processes, understand your value chain, your supply chain, know where your suppliers are coming from before you scale. And I think getting that in order up front is really important. But And there's lots of accreditations and third parties out there who will help like B Corp that keep you true and will help you attract the right type of talent, right? Because more people want to come and work at place, you know, places that are B Corps. And those B Corps, I think I've seen a stat a number of times that those B Corps are growing 28 times faster than the average business in the UK. So that's partly because you're getting the right people in and people who are driven to make a difference and that can snowball. So I think go for it. We need more businesses like Cafe Direct that are putting change at the heart of what they do and trying to, trying to have a more positive impact on, on the world and the people at the beginning of the value chain. Well, lastly, so I'm in, I'm in the chocolate aisle. Clearly, I can reach out and buy a bar of Tony's beyond that beacon. What should I be looking for? How can I navigate making the right decision? I would say, purely, you can avoid the chocolate from the big companies. The fair trade certification is a great start. So, you know, look, look for that because it means that people are pay- those companies are paying more for their cocoa. Divine are good. They are the good guys. A lot of the smaller companies are good most of the world's cocoa comes from west africa and that's where the problems lie so those big companies i would say ignore their chocolate look for the fair trade logo buy something that done a bit of research on and you know there's there's a lot of good companies out there it's it's not just tony's we have a slightly different business model to say someone like divine but yeah make an informed choice that probably starts with fair trade for me Ben, great to speak to you. Really interesting hearing about Tony Giacalone and inspiring us about not only the business, but the way your principles can be used beyond your brand and company. I look forward to you joining us again next time on Building Better Business.